Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I am your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 139 of the Power Company podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am here in Lander, Wyoming, um, though I won't be for long. I'm headed out on the road very soon, in just a few days. I'm going to fly to Vegas for a podcast interview. I'm flying to Vegas for one podcast interview because... A lot of you have asked for this interview, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm not going to tell you who it is right now. You're going to have to wait for that, but it'll be coming soon. And then I'm in Vegas briefly, and then I fly straight to San Francisco where I will meet up with Nate, and we've got a couple of podcast interviews there, followed by on August 16th through the 18th, that's a Friday through a Sunday, at Bridges Rock Gym in El Cerrito, California. We will be conducting a coaches and youth team workshop as well as parents. There will be a session for parents talking about uh, the language that we use and how to promote a better mindset with youth climbers. Um, So if you're a coach, if you're a youth athlete, definitely check out Bridges Rock Gym and sign up for that workshop. There are a few spots left, I believe, August 16th through the 18th. From there, I fly directly to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I'll be working with Escape Climbing on a project that I'm really looking forward to. And I'll also be presenting at Minneapolis Bouldering Project, um, sort of workshopping, so to speak, a presentation that I'm building That's really about the top lessons I've learned over the 200-some hours of face-to-face conversations I've had with experts in doing this podcast. Um, I've learned a lot over these last few years, and I hugely appreciate the support that all of you have given. Keep sharing it. Keep putting it out there. It keeps growing, and I'm excited to keep it going. Um, But I'm going to be talking at Minneapolis Bouldering Project Wednesday, August 21st at 7.30. And then I'll be hanging out at the brewery next door, um, just chatting with people, hanging out. So come out and see me Wednesday, August 21st, 7.30 at MBP. All right. Today's guest should not need an introduction, but because Americans don't really pay attention to what's going on elsewhere... I'm going to give him one anyway. His name should be mentioned along with the Tommy Caldwells and the Sonny Trotters, you know, those being the two examples we know here in North America as really amazing all-around climbers who can perform no matter what the rock type, no matter what the style, no matter if it's bouldering, trad, sport, big walls, alpine, doesn't matter. And today's guest, Lee Cossey, is one of those climbers. And I sat down in the Blue Mountains at Lee's house in Blackheath, and we discussed his philosophies as a climber, as a coach, as a business owner, 
and he's got some quirky philosophies. But that's what makes great climbers, the ability to think outside the box. Sitting in today for part of the conversation is Lee's partner, Andrea Ha. She was in and out because she was tending to baby Max now and then. And it's really great to have Andrea's perspective in here as well. And honestly, I look forward to going back to Blackheath and being able to talk one-on-one with Andrea as well. All right. Let's get into it. In those situations where you're confronted by lots of adversity, putting out a thousand spot fires or something, I just really enjoy that sort of state of mind. There's no room for doubt or anything. You're just reacting. I didn't know a lot about you coming into this trip. I'd, I'd heard your name, but I didn't realize the breadth of of what you'd done in climbing. Okay. And and now I'm sort. I've been describing you as kind of Australia's Tommy Caldwell. Okay. You know, but with <laughs> but with all your fingers. Yeah, exactly. And because you're so well-rounded you've got this massive base of experience in all sorts of mm. styles of climbing yeah is that something do. that you like really thought about or just something you <laughs> fell into i very much fell into it um i think by nature i'm a pretty um novelty seeking kind of person mm-hmm. and i'm interested by a lot of things i'm very details orientated but i really am quite curious about details on just about everything and i like to give everything a go i guess yeah yeah um i guess too the way that i was introduced to climbing probably had a big impact on where i've since gone and that is that i was brought into climbing by an uncle who was a guide at arapolis and you know that's a very very trad orientated area yeah and you grew up sort of in the blue mountains i grew up in the blue mountains yeah yeah so arapolis was a long way away so i went there for a two-week trip with my uncle who was a guide and he just showed me the ropes completely on Mm -hmm. how to drag climb and i think i was 14 at the time so the introduction to climbing was super traditional but i've come from this background of like you know moderately high level gymnastics right right and then the other side of that was that i'm in the epicenter of what would become australian sport climbing capital which is the blue mountains at the time it wasn't but it became that over my sort of first few years of climbing yeah um, it went from being a bit of a backwater in australia not on the kind of you know not on the radar in terms of a high volume of sport climbing to being having far 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 more sport climbing than the rest of australia put together Mm -hmm. and so i guess it's a little bit serendipitous in that my introduction was chad my hometown was a sport capital and i have this background of being in kind of relatively high level of sport i guess yeah and so what what is your sport background oh so gymnastics primarily yeah and Um, you were the same andrea right you were a gymnast yeah andrea was a much higher level gymnast than i was (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think just growing up in in Victorian, just being dedicated to that one sport, and I did it for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's, it's interesting you say that because when I was looking at your, kind of your tick list, your resume, so to speak, 
um, and thinking about, well, I know he grew up in the Blue Mountains and there's this entirely different ethic at Arapiles and the Grampians. It very much reminded me of, have you read The Talent Code? Mm. The Daniel Coyle mm-hmm. book yeah. where yeah. he talks about, you know, these people who just happen to be in the right place, place at the right time. Yeah. At the right time. Yeah. And like you said, it's sort of serendipitous yeah. that you're introduced to climbing and you live in this, what will become the Mecca of climbing. Yeah. And I think the ethics of those three areas, it, from what I can see anyway, have sort of shaped the, the style that you climb in and the way that you climb. And yeah. I'm interested to know a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, I guess I said, you know, the Blue Mountains would become the sport climbing mecca. Yeah. And I guess it wasn't that at the time. Um, but as kind of me and my peers, my brother and things like that kind of progressed through the grades, we've had this kind of, you know, clean slate of amazing overhanging sandstone cliffs but with no roots and so automatically we're looking at new routes to do and starting to bolt and things like that and once you become familiar with that process you know you end up being the the group of australians who are bolting the next generation projects and climbing new levels and whatever you bolt you end up kind of rising to that challenge and it becomes this kind of a self-fulfilling kind of scenario really yeah yeah and when you're that age it's almost limitless like your your belief in yourself and yeah yeah definitely i think yeah for me i guess belief has never been a massive strong point but um but i'm very rational and you know i kind of see what goes on around me i reflect on kind of what i'm able to do in certain situations and how I'm progressing and can kind of extrapolate from that what I could be able to do in another season. So I wouldn't say, you know, I'm just have this unwavering belief in my ability to do stuff. Sure, <laughs> Not sure. at all, but um, relatively pragmatic in in kind of working towards something. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you, did your brother Ben start climbing at the same time roughly? Basically, yeah. So okay. I think he, you know, from the moment that I started going out every weekend um, on the rocks in the mountains he was probably only a year behind that okay yeah in those first years were you two competitive with each other in the first couple of years not so much because I had that I had a more experience just from climbing with my uncle at Arapiles and a bit more climbing in the gym a bit more strength another year and a half of development you could say except which he overtook me very quickly in that regard (laughs) um so yeah first couple of years not so much and then i got um a pretty major injury in my elbow it opened the door for him yeah very much so so (laughs) i was 16 and had just climbed my first 30 which is like 13c or 8a plus and um basically had to have four months off climbing yeah um came back to climbing at that point when I came back to climbing, Ben was better than me. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of caught up, overtook him again. And then, then I had to have my elbow operated on at the same time the following year, another sort of three or four months off. And then from that moment onwards, Ben has been out, able to outbolder me on, on plastic easily off yeah. the couch ever since. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe you don't even need that much belief when you have this 
like built-in competition right next to you all the time. Absolutely. It may actually be one of the roots of my lack of belief. <laughs> it's my, my very talented brother. <laughs> well, it's got, I think it's built drive. Definitely. nothing else. Yeah, yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. Which, if, if nothing else, is a good substitute for yeah, belief. Yeah. If you're yeah, just yeah. willing to forge ahead. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and I think belief is one of those things that works differently for different people. If you're a particularly rational person, you don't trust belief for the sake of it. You yeah, know, for, yeah. It's just like, well, no, I, I want to work toward doing that. I will work toward doing that. I don't think I'll do it today, but I don't think I won't do it today. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a different way of looking at things. And I think, you know, a lot of people probably recognize that in me in the past that, I am just, um, yeah, quite uh, logical and logical. Yeah, yeah, maybe to a fault sometimes, but yeah, I think I'm so, the same way, yeah. and and I think that helps me believe because I can say well, I've put the work in. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm here prepared. Yeah, exactly. So I've done the best that I can yeah. to this point. So now let's put that to work and see what happens. Definitely, you know? yeah, and I think there's a flip side to belief to having a sort of strong sense of belief in yourself is that you don't, maybe you have more resources to actually um, break down some of the negative beliefs mm -hmm. because they're not as strong. He's like, well, no, this is all evidence-based. So I'll mm -hmm. just give it a go. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's an important way to approach things actually. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, when you do fail on things, it doesn't become this reflection of who you are it more becomes a reflection of what your process was. Definitely. And now you can make some changes and, you know, come back. Definitely, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I think you're always going to be, like, emotionally tied to the things you're driven to do, though. And I think without that emotional kind of element to your goals, it's, um, you know, you won't have the drive to do it. And I think whenever emotion is involved, it's hard not to have the downs, like, with things. But you know, you bounce back. And I feel, that's why I feel like I kind of go through these phases of like, all right, really driven and want to do something. And then kind of, if I feel like I fail, it's like, it, you know, hits you in the heart. Yeah. It takes a bit to bounce back, but you do bounce back. Yeah. 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 But yeah. that's me. It's sort of up and down. <laughs> well, I think yeah. that's most of us. Yeah. I, I don't know how anybody can stay up all the time. Or if, if they do, are they really up that high? You know? Maybe. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. So I, I was just in the Gramps and very, very briefly at Arapolis. And it really struck me that there's a strong ethic in both of those places that, like Taipanwa, for instance, mm -hmm. is very much a mixed climbing area. Yeah, They'll put bolts in where a bolt is needed, but if there's gear available, they'll use gear. Mm -hmm. And they're not afraid of big runouts and you know it's not a like safe climbing haven where you should go and learn to climb yeah yeah but in some respects i think you did learn to climb there i mean maybe not in the very beginning yeah. years but yeah. how has the the taipan wall in particular shaped how you approach yeah. climbing now yeah yeah I guess 
what Taipan is and, and Arapiles and that sort of ethic that you talk about is a reflection of a time within Australian climbing, right. um, maybe more so than the, it being a geographical centre. Like it, And if you, it goes to, if you look at the first ascents that are done in those areas, they're quite often done by foreigners, uh, people from out of state, mm. probably more often than not. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's a little bit more like, um, this is this is the kind of the accepted way in which you do things in that area. Therefore, the people that develop routes there kind of just continue that same trend. And it's almost maybe because it hasn't had a really, really strong local scene that it hasn't really shifted into something else, like a bit more of a sport-orientated sure, approach. Sure, sure, yeah. But to answer your question about how it's shaped me, like because it's a very real thing, like it's got a different style to it, um, it feels like a whole different world up there. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think when you're young, especially, and you are looking at things that you want to do, you just see see their challenge, the challenges as being normal. It's like that's that's uh, let's say serpentine. It's a mixed climb with not amazing bolts and you know some big runouts. That's what I want to do. And That's, it's, you know, just to clarify for people who don't know Serpentine, it's, it's also pitch, yeah. a, a, the second pitch yeah. up a, a big intimidating yep. wall. Definitely, yes. You know, and there are no anchors, right? No, no, you, you jump off the top, top out or top out or something. Yeah. Jump off and take this massive fall. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So it's not like it's just a pitch. No, you know? exactly. It, there's quite a bit more to it. For sure, yeah. And in being like that, you just you just rise to the challenge you you haven't got something to contrast that to like we didn't you know it's not like all right i've grown up in um maybe the red or rodear or somewhere that's quite consumer orientated with quite a lot of bolts you just like that's what you do and you just do it especially when you're young you don't really think about what it isn't you just there solve the problem and get on with it and then when you do go somewhere else so like my first trip to europe climbing in say so i remember having chat with um dave graham and joe kinder and i think luke parody at the time like we're just talking about how normal it is in australia to kind of just oh yeah well sometimes you have run outs or sometimes you got a shit bolt and you know mm-hmm. everyone else in the world is just like oh my god that's just unacceptable someone needs to get in there and fix that you're like, yeah oh yeah well i guess you could and i guess i do that at my home crags but i can also just get on with it just do it do it yeah Yeah. and so then say how has that shaped my climbing further it's like going to yosemite and um you know doing something like el nino ground up yeah um there's pictures on that which is just like all right well i haven't got gear here but i'll just kind of make it happen or yeah things like that you just kind of draw on that skill set which you kind of think is normal yeah yeah and that's that really kind of hit me when i was climbing on the taipan wall because it seems out of left field almost when you just show up in Yosemite and are trying to go ground up on some some notorious big wall, you know. And I'm like, where in Australia are you preparing for that kind of thing? But then when I go see the Taipan wall, it's it seems like a perfect breeding ground for the skills that you would need. Yeah, to run it out, to try hard way above gear, definitely to be unsure of what's coming, but quest up anyway. Exactly, it's yeah. a headspace thing. It's it's not about um, trying to recreate a, a three thousand foot 
vertical granite wall. That's not that's not the thing that you need to be able to do. The thing that you need to be able to do is go outside of what is other people's comfort zones. So I don't feel like I go outside of my comfort zone. Something like El Cap, it's like actually just the comfort zone, my comfort zone kind of encompass that if that makes sure. sense yeah. yeah yeah which is which is a really interesting thing and i i really want to impress upon people listening something you just said that whenever i have people come to me that want to train for a big wall or something um or a free attempt on some big line their their automatic sort of logical place to go is oh should i be doing a million laps on the tread wall mm. You know, and I'm like, no, I don't think that's what you need. Mm. I don't think that's where you should go. It's not physical capacity they need. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're going to shut themselves down mentally yeah. way before they get shut down physically. Yeah. Most people. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really interesting observation and a smart observation that you made. Yeah. To say that it's more about headspace. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think if you could, you know, put the pictures of, a, you know, LCAP, big wall side by side at a, at a crag and get someone all right do this then this then this then this there'd be loads of people who could kind of do each of those pictures right. one after the other yeah yep. but put it in that situation where it's one on top of the other in a different environment then yeah things are very very different yeah and you yeah. may not have the right piece of gear that you need yeah. for that moment and exactly can yeah. you just keep climbing yeah you know yeah those sorts of things so so a better breeding ground for that sort of objective might be someplace like Smith Rock or yeah. someplace where you have to deal with big runouts. Yeah. Um, and just doing single pitches that push you outside of whatever your current Red River Gorge comfort zone is. Yeah, yeah. You know, push outside of that as training for these big objectives, more so than just more laps on the treadmill. Most definitely. Yeah. 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 And so when. When you were younger and taking those skills that you learned on Taipan, um, Arapiles, why not just go straight to hard sport climbing and stay there? I see lots of people do that once they have those abilities and they can push for bigger numbers mm. on, on relatively safe things yeah. that they can get done relatively quickly they're not nearly as involved yeah why not just go straight to that why stick to this i think the hashtag that you use andrea is uh lee Cossie adventures or something like that um it's a bit of a piss take on me putting her in these epic situations <laughs> i think i'm just a bit of a naive person and i follow lee on his quests for for novelty <laughs> <laughs> for novelty exactly it's it's not it's not some sort of i don't know so we find ourselves in situations that are a bit of an adventure that probably wasn't necessarily mm. planned mm. Mm -hmm. um yeah i guess the reason is again it's a little bit about that sort of um moment in time and that sort of serendipitous nature of my exposure when i was younger so that trad and adventure stuff is always on my radar mm -hmm. and um, and I guess to about the time, like we get a lot of sort of media from the UK as well. And so oh, sure, and sure. that late mid to late nineties 
period like the grit was really really a big thing over there and so yeah. this kind of idea that okay you uh a good climber is someone who is not just um you know super strong on a bouldering all but that is relevant um they don't just do hard sport routes um, but it's you know they still can do that they can do something that's bold they can do something that's long you can on-site something in a challenging environment and that i think is i've always been quite motivated to want to be as complete as possible um maybe not so much because i want to be um proficient but i want that full gamut of experiences yeah um i don't want to go or you know before i went to yosemite for example i didn't want to have not been there i really really wanted to go and like you know be in that position that i saw alex huber on you know salathay on the front cover of climbing man yeah yeah in the late 90s and um it's like i want to i want to see what that's like and yeah and uh, give it a go yeah cool and now you're coaching kids Mm -hmm. are you trying to or is there a way you can instill that same or do you want to Mm. instill that same sense of adventure experience um hashtag adventures with lee cossie or lee cossie adventures into these kids well i think the big thing is like understanding that everyone will have a different reason for doing whatever they do Mm. and everyone will have a different baseline for what is stimulating for them um you know, there's times where I kind of look back on my climbing and go, oh, you know, I would love to be able to borrow some of the methodicalness that, you know, peers of mine have. And, you know, that would have, that would be amazing for my sport climbing and it'd be amazing for my physical strength development. But that's not me. Like I'm really, really novelty seeking kind of person. And, um, and so I guess I, I recognize this in the kids as well. There, there's going to be people who, want to do it all and there's going to be people who you know really really content like just focusing in on one aspect of their climbing and i just want to be there to make them feel like whatever they want to do is cool and give them the opportunity and make sure that if they do want to do something that they don't look back on their kind of younger years and sort of wish for more exposure i guess so yeah Mm, that's really cool taking the the approach that just because I really value it doesn't mean this person does and I'll help them move in the direction that they value. Definitely. And just make sure that they know what's out there and have a, have a sense of what they can go and do if they wanted to do it. Yeah. Cool. Andrea, you look like you really wanted to say something when he (laughs) said novelty seeking and, and I'm curious to know now what that was. No, while you were talking about the preparation for Yosemite and, um, kind of the contrast of doing laps in the tread wall. Um, I think Lee should talk about how he prepared for <laughs> Yosemite and um, hopefully inspire some of the kids up here. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, we're sitting in your little training dungeon down here. Yeah. So. Yeah, I look like a you know, modern day, like, your fingerboard addict if you look around the training room <laughs> yeah well we can we can have an a, addiction anonymous group together <laughs> totally yeah, i look yeah. the same way so. yeah um <clears throat> well yeah so i guess andrew is referring to kind of like and 
there's two situations I'm thinking of. There's yeah. the building your chocks and going out and trying Echo Crack and then yeah. also the the hand preparation <laughs> before going to Yosemite hand as well. Preparation. Yeah, well... Let's Does this start. involve a meat tenderizer or anything Not far like off that? it. Um, <laughs> so knowing that, um, well, yeah, so knowing that I was going to, going to Yosemite and that I had like very, very limited experience on big wall granite roots yeah. and crack climbing especially, um, I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to go there and be completely ill-equipped. So went around kind of my local area trying to repeat a or repeating the routes that I'd done, the crack climbs and multi-pitches and things, but they weren't super hard. So I thought, all right, we need to make it harder. So this one particular climb, Echo Crack, I um, I thought, well, it's grade 25, so it's like 12A, B sort of grade, um, four pitches long, and the crux is kind of two pitches of fist cracks, like mm-hmm. quite long pitches. It just eats number three camelots. I'm like, well, we need to make this more challenging so i thought oh, i'll um make some wooden chocks just out of some building timber and some slings yeah and um and let's do it at night and hell let's like do it bare feet as well so I did this thing barefoot fairly sharp crack um i was following until you said bare feet and now i'm thinking you're a little crazy <laughs> but i got i you know we don't do a heap of track climbing at home so i kind of had my sizes wrong i just kind of lined up my hand next to a number three camelot and um you know made the wooden chocks based on that but i didn't really retract the cam enough so when i got up right. there with the wooden chocks the wooden chocks are like too big for most of the placements <laughs> i'm up there at night with a pretty average head torch just sketching out with a with a foot wedged in a sharp crack <laughs> Um, but it was, it was awesome. Like, you know, cause I guess the, like, I like that kind of the damage control, um, chaos management state of mind. And I find that a pretty empowering thing to kind of overcome. And so, mm. yeah, it's really, really good from a expanding my comfort zone point of view. And, um, and that was actually a really, really good experience for, you know, going to, Yosemite, it's like, oh, can, there's all this adversity and can still overcome it and kind of make it happen. And But you used shoes on the Salafé. Uh, I didn't do the Salafé, but did Freerider, free free Golden Gate, El Nino yeah. and stuff. Yeah, definitely used shoes. <laughs> Most of the climbing was by day and I would say I had cams on me didn't the whole time. Chocks. <laughs> didn't take yeah. a wooden chocks yet. They probably posed a quarantine risk anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the headspace was exactly a good place for yeah. you to understand. Totally. You know, Lee Kujis here in Blackheath, we were talking about you last night uh, when I was sort of prepping for this, and and something he said really speaks to that sort of um, epic that you yeah. love to be in. He said, I, if I were in a strange situation where I, I couldn't climb myself out, it was going to be scary, it's going to be this massive epic... <laughs> if I could choose a partner to appear next to me on the wall <laughs> at that moment, it would be Lee Cossie every single time. That's funny. You know? okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably not by far, not the strongest person that he knows, but maybe, maybe resourceful. Yeah. And yeah. And have willingly put myself in many of those situations that he might find himself in, in the past. So. Yeah. And what was the phrase you just used a minute ago about, chaos and oh damage control like yeah so 
in those situations where you're confronted by lots of adversity, like that mindset that, I mean, it feels like you're kind of putting out a thousand spot fires or something like, yeah. like I, I, I like that. I just really enjoy that sort of state of mind. There's no kind of, there's no room for doubt or anything. You're just reacting and yeah, it's a, it's the closest that I come to being in a flow state with climbing. Yeah. Um, Can we dig into that a little more? Because I see lots of people get into that sort of chaos, sort of frantic mode yep and not be able to yeah quiet it to damage control it yeah they, yeah yeah. they give into it immediately yeah yeah i see that as well a lot how do you or how did you move past that early on or was that just something you were always good at no i don't think i was always good at it i can think back to moments where like especially in my younger years at Arapolis leading a Chad route and just kind of like, you know, not not wanting to kind of keep going. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I and I'm sure when you were young, there's so much history here yeah. in Australia that I'm sure when you were young you were coming up relatively quickly and then facing routes that, were legendary that you yeah. had built this myth up definitely yeah you know and and that plays on your mind too yeah. even before you're leaving the ground so yeah definitely and adds to that sort of chaos yeah yeah it's it's a, actually it's a good question and it's one that i ask myself a bit and I often come up with different answers for it like i think there's there is an element of having worked through it pragmatically and using kind of my sort of strengths in kind of rationalization to kind of work through it but to say it was just that would be to neglect something that's probably equally if not more important and that is that i was fortunate to i guess develop a sort of sense of identity as a climber around being able to do that Mm. and so that became one of the things that i felt was like an intrinsic part of who i was as a climber and then when you're thrown into that situation, you have a positive association with reacting a certain way. Yeah. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> once you, I guess, start to recognize that there is that resource that you've got, it's there to be tapped into. Yeah. Um, and to kind of, I guess, to reflect on where I think it came from, I think it was a few, again, serendipitous moments where... I got to be like I was climbing in, in partnership as a stronger climber in that in that partnership and was the one who kind of managed to kind of you know free the crux pitch of some multi pitch and kind of get through and overcome some sort of adversity and it was those fortunate moments where that I guess that helped to shape that identity um, yeah yeah and so I guess when I this is kind of going a step further but like to kind of talk about how i would help facilitate in that so facilitate that growth in someone else it's you really need to set those kind of smart goals which are achievable that are close to the edge of your comfort zone but not beyond it and need to kind of succeed and to start just start to expand that sense of identity into whatever comfort zone that is that you want to yeah be able to yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think sort of conditioning through immersion 
in a in a really smart way yep. is the way to do it. And mm. and so often when I and my wife and I actually fight about this all the time while we're climbing. Yep. Because she gives into it very yep. quickly. Yep. And and I get really frustrated at that. I'm like, that was an opportunity. Yeah. Like you just yep. blew your opportunity. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and the way I feel is that when you have those scary moments, take stock of where you are. You know, most often early on when you're first encountering those scary moments, it's not like you're going to throw somebody right on no. um, this <laughs> fist crack with bare feet and wooden chocks yep. in the middle yep. of the night, you know, yep. who's a, a new climber. No, Those scary moments are going to come when they're at a pretty good stance yep. where they can really think about it and be a little more logical than that yep. chaotic brain is allowing them to be. Yep. And if they can then push through that, they can use that success to create momentum for the next one, exactly. for the next one. Yep. And that doesn't mean every time you're going to push through, Yeah. but as long Not as you build up this, this base of successes that you yep. can pull on later, Definitely. It, it's massive. Exactly. And it's, it's about yeah, creating the opportunities for that to happen. And I, I guess one thing I noticed looking around at different people, people often go from strength to strength or, you know, or yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Um, and it's usually the people who are, who are the kind of stronger of a partnership, even if you've got two climbers who are fairly new, stronger, and I mean that kind of just in a general sense, like they're the ones that seem to identify more quickly with the climber that continues to grow. Yep. Yeah. Whereas the ones who kind of identify as the ones as being you know, less strong or less able stick with that identity. And so I think reflecting and being rational about, you know, the stories that you're telling yourself and that sort of thing has a really big role to play. Yeah. So, yeah. How often are you seeking out these epics? I don't know like the year before last andrew and i did loads of this sort of thing like i guess um mostly for andrea's benefit like we were preparing to go to yosemite and she did never... andrea know it was for andrea's benefit or was andrea like she... why are you dragging me on these epics <laughs> she un she understands my like <laughs> understands my theories with it um and you know we decided to go to yosemite so she was like all for it and this yeah. was in preparation for free this is yeah in preparation for going to to try free rider yeah. um like i suppose in that preparation what was more important for me was that mental side of things and yeah. being comfortable in uncomfortable situations so lee probably would have benefited more from fingerboarding and training <laughs> um whereas i kind of needed that time being comfortable on trad gear again and Multi pitches and run outs. Yeah. yeah. And even even just like the logistics of moving around on a big wall. So yeah. So we finished yeah. bolting like this ten pitch route together and ended up sort of sending that, which is so that was kind of good preparation as well. Just just bolting in that sort of, you know, few hundred meter cliff and things like that. So, so despite it being a a sport climb essentially, it still felt pretty adventurous. The rock was not amazing and slightly traversy and yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you're you're uncomfortable because you're tired and it's dark and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think lucky for me, I've got a, a partner that I can trust to help in situations and, and learn from. Um, 
you can transport you, him there in the middle of the night yeah, when you're out of yeah. gear and you're barefoot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, but and, Andrew is like a really willing sufferer. Like, you know, she... That's pretty important, actually. It's so important. You like say you, that sort of in jest and yeah. laughing, but <laughs> it's a really important part of doing... Totally. I'll, I'll laugh things. at anyone suffering on a cliff. <laughs> I laugh at myself suffering on a cliff. <laughs> but, you know, she's so willing to suffer and so willing to just like, you know, there is only one way. It's a one-way street and that street is like, you know, to the next belay or to the next ledge or whatever and yeah that's a massive asset so yeah like even though she hadn't had a lot of experience knowing that we're going to spend the best part of six months doing some multi-pitches and some different gym trad climbing like i knew that it was gonna result in her having more than enough skills to you know do free rider which she did ground up anyway in the end yeah I think that preparation, it's good. Like it's those smart goals before you go there. Like you kind of, yeah, tick those things off. Just like if you're training for a sport climb of grade, I don't know, whatever, you kind of want to tick off the grades leading up to that. It's just like with your trad climbing, you want to tick off the, the other components of it. Yeah. And you're both very interested in the physical side of training as well so you aren't totally dropping away all physical training while working on skills not at all like i think both of us with our backgrounds our our baseline is our our kind of you know natural way of thinking is how is this loading my body and that like andrew is an exercise physiologist and i'm a physio like our day in day out job is to write programs for people to overcome whatever right barriers or injuries or you know achieve whatever goals they have and we're doing that anywhere up to kind of 12 15 times a day and so it kind of that's just kind of the known thing that's always happening in the background um and it's yeah we go in this conversation obviously we're talking about the mental preparation yeah a lot yeah, yeah. but um yeah i just wanted to yeah, highlight that it's yeah. not like this is the only thing we're doing. <laughs> no, I think know. I did my hardest boulder problem that same year as well. Yeah. 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 So you're still kind of doing that concurrently. Totally. Yeah. So when you are really stuck into a sport climbing goal or a bouldering goal where the mental side of it doesn't necessarily rely on these epics, are you still seeking these things out on a, on a hobby sort of level? Um, yeah, like outside of climbing, you mean, or just doing it as a side, just yeah, just yeah. a side part of climbing. Yeah, yes and no. Like, I think often I go quite, you know, months or even a year without doing some sort of like epic. Um, but I do still crave. Is that, that true, Andrea, or is he? Is he exaggerating? There is it more like three days. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's always a bit of chaos in our life, but it's not always okay. climbing. You can yeah. find the chaos yeah. elsewhere. Totally. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So we've which got, is a good thing, I think. Yeah, exactly. And and I do like that. Like I, I'll, you know, will routinely take on more than I can handle. Yeah. And I guess that's an element of kind of wanting that novelty. And so it's another support group we should start. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> totally. It's like yeah, I'll I'll do that. It's like oh, there's opportunity over there. Yeah, I'll do that. And you know, before long, you're trying to juggle a hundred balls. And yeah, yeah, it's it's probably an asset as well as being a weakness of mine. And um, an asset in that 
it keeps life interesting and I put myself out there for different things. But certainly, you know, you can crash and burn when you take on too much. Mm-hmm. That certainly happens at times. Yeah. yeah. Does, does the business that you two run together, it's Move Clinic, right? Yeah. yeah. And is, are there other businesses tied into that or is that all sort of encompassing... We also run a, a bouldering wall called Camp Street Climbing. So okay. the two of us run that with another couple. Yeah. Okay. And then Move Clinic is our physiotherapy exercise physiology business. Right. Yeah. Did that all get started in the midst of other chaos? Pretty much, yeah. Like, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I might have been training for a marathon at the time. This is some, <laughs> something just as a side note. But, <laughs> yeah, then we kind of brought brought together kind of our own sole practitioner businesses into one and then now we've kind of got a few employees and um partners and things like that in that business yeah. cool yeah yeah and i think that's the way a lot of small business that's going to be successful starts mm. is kind of in the midst of lots of other chaos and then it just remains some level of chaos and you know it looks really it it has this amazing facade yeah when you're looking in from the outside but the owners the people who are making it run sort of always have a little bit of chaos going on i think that's almost necessary yeah i i (laughs) it frustrates me because i i love the idea of like the the neatness and everything being super systematized Yeah, a really clean system yeah but i'm starting to kind of i guess except that maybe that's not so much my nature and you know what the things that i've done that i'm kind of proud of have certainly come out of that asset of of mine which is to kind of go in and have a go and so yeah it's just kind of understanding i guess the limitations of chaos and yeah it's curbing it. chaos exactly yeah, yeah curbing it with that organization a little yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So something that I, something else I find really interesting in terms of like Move Clinic and your physio background is that in the States, at least from my observation, a lot of the people who, um, at least traditionally, it's definitely changing. There are people like uh, Nick Berry um, and, and quite a few people now, but it used to be that the older generation of trad climbers and the bold ethic sort of climbers didn't at all believe in training and those sorts of things um it's interesting because there was like the really like the camp four stone master guys who were really into it yeah yeah but then there was this level of like old trad dad kind yep. of guys yep. who were like we never trained for climbing you yep. know and but you've definitely stuck into it so much that it's become your your study yep. at uni and your see i yep. just used Lively. an australian term there uni, uni. yeah and college <laughs> I went to college and uh <laughs> and then now it's your career mm. yeah was there any sort of First off, does that other ethic exist here? That absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a strong culture of, um, of this sort of dirt bag, which you know from the outside is easy to kind of say, "Oh, they're too cool to train." And it's like, "Oh, right. training is uncool," like, right? And so there is definitely that culture. 
Um, I was just talking about this with my brother Ben a few days ago and that, you know, like our generation, so like, you know, getting into climbing is in climbing in the late 90s and stuff is probably one of the last generations where a dirtbag teenager was also a really, really passionate trainer. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, like I guess the young dirtbags almost, you know, seem to shy away from that training and kind of be like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, I'm out there to just rock climb. It's, yeah. It's an experiential climber. thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or you've got the performance orientated youth climbers who are very, very gym focused, comp focused and, you know, don't do the outdoor stuff. And, um, yeah, like it, it makes sense where I am now is complete reflection of kind of the things that I've always loved. And, um, you know pretty lucky and very excited to kind of be where i am in this position but um i guess i would love to see the next generation kind of find that balance again like yeah obviously you know it's a choice to kind of dirtbag it if you want but that's also a really beautiful thing at a certain time in life yeah Um, but to not feel like you know there's a fixed identity around that so you can dirtbag you can have your fingerboard in your backpack or on the side of your car you can still train like Mm. yeah i think it can be quite limiting if you identify too closely with just the one Mm. one component of the climbing like so often i've seen people say oh why are you training and just sport climbing you know where yeah. it's at is trad climbing right but i think with having the background of the training and the sport climbing it massively opens the door yeah. for for more trad climbing and you get to do the coolest routes yeah right yeah if you like can if, do it all yeah if we didn't do the training and the sport climbing I, I wouldn't have had the strength and the ability to get up a, a route like free rider or right. or even some of the other trad routes in the country mm. something like the totem pole yeah. um mm-hmm. like if i didn't have that sport background that trad route that too hard yeah yeah wouldn't have been possible so if there can be a bit more of a balance and acceptance that both have their role mm. i think you're gonna have more enjoyment out of both sides definitely yeah just being open-minded like there is no you don't you don't sign up to one particular identity as a climber or as a human in general you just do what you feel like doing. And if that is, you know, doing everything, that's great. If it's doing one thing because that's what you want to do, then that's all cool. But, yeah, not feeling like there's a fixed kind of fixed camps that you need to assign to. Yeah, I really like that you both use the word identity when you're when you're talking about this. And, and I've been limited by that identity thought mm. myself. You know, I feel like I've done all of this climbing thing backwards you know i started out i started as a gym climber where lots of people do but then pretty immediately went to trad climbing Mm. identified as a trad climber i'm not clipping bolts you know if there's gear nearby i'm not touching that bolt i'm not even gonna look at it yeah you're lucky i don't chop it yeah yeah you know (laughs) that kind of attitude and then i went full-on sport climber like why do i need to boulder i've got good technique you know And now I'm going more toward bouldering. So I'm, yeah. I'm doing it very backwards. I should have bouldered when I was 20. <laughs> but, but that identity has definitely been something I've thought quite a bit about mm. recently because I have the skills of a trad climber, a sport climber. Yeah. Now I'm a boulder 
can I call myself a boulder if I have all those skills and if I exercise them somewhat regularly? Yeah. So I like the term climber more than exactly. I like, you know, the boulder or sport climber. And some people do have those like you said, it's totally fine if that's Focus. what you yeah, want to yeah, do, yeah. if that's how you want to identify. Great. But to be a well-rounded climber, identifying as one of those things can be really, really limiting. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And you definitely see it time and time again where people are con- confined by that sense of identity. And that's sometimes even created by the people around them. I think you see it with, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you're, you're, you're weak or you're just a pumper or you know you're not strong like and that can really limit someone and that's not even a construct of their own doing so yeah yeah it's really interesting so now that you're like i don't want to say you're you're definitely not the old guard of australia yet Mm -hmm. you're getting there you'll be there 37 (laughs) yeah as of two weeks ago (laughs) Well, happy belated birthday. But but now that you're you've matured quite a bit over your earlier years of climbing and you've gotten to see all of this change in the sport and now you're coaching kids, how has how has Lee Cossey changed from punk kid who I'm sure you and your brother wreaked havoc on quite a few old guard back then you know how has your attitude toward climbing changed or is it pretty much the same attitude just in a more mature vessel uh, <clears throat> i think personally like what i'm motivated toward like you know with my own climbing has changed um I think if I look back on, you know, what I was motivated to do when I was younger, it sort of feels like you're you're never really looking too far from what's around you. You're like, all right, I want to do that. And you have a very fixed way of thinking about your goals. Whereas now I feel like, all right, there's this kind of huge landscape of things that I could do. And they're mm. not necessarily like objectives, but the objectives now might be, I want to pursue that feeling that I get when I go chad climbing or go on-site climbing mm. or something like that. And that's more of a pursuing some sort of experience. Um, or I might go, all right, there is a real hallmark route that I want to get done at some point and that'll try and factor that into my life over a few-year period. Um, so I guess I look at it from my, from my own perspective as a bigger picture process, yeah, um, which is definitely healthier. Because otherwise, you're just going to get swept up in whatever's happening, and you know you, what you do is very reflective of what's going on around you. And I don't really want that to be the case. I want what I do to be reflective of the things I value. So, yeah. from an experience point of view, or from a you know life achievement kind of ascent point of view. Wow, that's uh, a really fucking great answer to a convoluted question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the other side of it is how I. look at climbing now when i kind of you know i guess in the context of being a coach or a mentor or something like that and um and i think in a way that although my experience as a youth were amazing and it had i came through the sport a really really 
important time for myself and my lessons were reflective reflective of that time I want to make sure that the kids that I kind of work with now hmm, how do I put it I guess I want to make sure that they are in no way limited by my way of looking at things mm. and so that means I kind of need to reflect on you know the stories that I either tell myself or that I have been telling and make sure that there aren't any pitfalls in that. Right. And there always will be. And I'm sure I'll reflect on this time and go, oh, yeah, could have done that differently. But I know from my experiences, a lot of things that, you know, were were known truths when I was growing up that are now kind of, okay, that's complete rubbish. Yeah. And so yeah. I want to sort of, I guess, yeah, like encourage them to be, um, you know, constructively critical of the things that are going on around them um you know think about things <clears throat> think about what they want to do not just as climbers but as humans in general and yeah i guess just in part that kind of you know yeah i guess longer term view of climbing yeah i love that you talked about sort of chasing the experience mm. um and i think that's a not well uh, maybe not understood isn't the right word but uh i mean for instance my whole plan coming to the taipan wall knowing i'm going to be way out of shape yeah my body's beaten up from being on the road for so long but i've been playing it relatively very i've been playing it very safe for the last several years and I really just want to get scared. Yeah. Yeah. Like I want to be in a position to push through some fear. Yeah, yeah. A few times. Yep. You know. So climbing on Taipan for me was much less about I want to send a route. Yep. You know, this trip was all about I just want to push the boundaries of my comfort zone again yeah, yeah. where yep. I haven't in a long time. And I think it's tough for people to grasp that. I, I agree. Yeah. Because everyone I've talked to is like, well, but, but did you do groovy? And I'm yeah, like, yeah. no, I didn't do it. It's, it's not know? what I was trying to do. That yeah. wasn't yeah. the point <laughs> at all. You know, yeah. I would love to come back and try to do it at some yeah. point. But this trip was more about let's get scared up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that may, you know, frankly, especially, this trip because I've played it so safe for so long. It didn't take much yep. for me to get freaked out a little bit. Yep. You know, my first run up groovy was first day at the Taipan, blazing sun, really hot. You know, and <laughs> it's I super grabbed slippery. Those yeah, first yep. slopers at the you know first second bolt there. Yep. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, and you've got to push on something that feels like a skate ramp or something. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm immediately terrified, you know. And and then the next day I went to the top of Groovy. Yeah. And it's kind of heady up there, even though it's safe falls. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's kind of heady. And pushing through through those falls, pushing through there was enough for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and and I actually went up with a stick clip. Yep. And there's that sort of run out. Yep. At the second to third bolt, yep. Yep. where you're climbing on those slopers. Yeah. And the first day up there, that section felt horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. So the next day, I'm like, I'm taking a stick clip up. I'm going to yep. clip that third bolt. But then the stick clip wouldn't reach. Oh, it's going to say, did like, it actually reach? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. This is why I'm here. Yeah. You know, yep. deep breath, climb through it, and it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
But that that's it. And it, and I think quite often people look back on the things that are the most powerful memories for them or the most formative experiences and they're they weren't necessarily a sense. They were feelings or they were Yeah. Yeah. And and so or far too infrequently we don't make our goals experience based. We make them um, you know, headline based if you want to put it like that i did such and such in this many goes or um but yeah i think you've got to kind of balance those goals out with the ones where all right i want to feel like i expand my sense of identity as a climber or i get scared or i have this experience or i climb in this place or i do something with a friend or you know that sort of thing and i think they're the things that you look back on and feel as much if not more satisfaction with as you do with your kind of bigger sense yeah yeah you know we were just at arapiles and we went to do kachung because we have to yeah you know, i can't go to arapiles i can't come to australia and not do kachung yeah and there's a big crew uh i think from cans okay um on kachung yeah. and and it's obvious that they're all intimidated yeah um, and they like hang at the corner of the roof and, yep. you know, psych themselves up to climb out the roof. And, yep. you know, I watched one guy in particular, I watched him pretty closely and I could hear the fear in his breathing and I could see it in his face and, and he just kept pushing through, yep. you know, and turned the lip shaking a little and, yeah, and yep. definitely afraid of it and, strength failing a little bit yep. but turned the lip and kept climbing and awesome and even though he hung on the gear at the corner yep. for me that's that looked like getting to witness this formative exactly. moment you know? yeah 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 definitely like it, he he will never not look back on that experience right. and think of it you know as a, as a nothing thing it's like totally yeah it's really cool to see that and i think yet yeah, trying to bring that experience into your climbing is a really really valuable way to set your goals yeah 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 absolutely and and i you know to sort of backtrack a little bit on something i started to ask about before you know the the coaching kids thing now and and teaching them to value these experiences and giving them the opportunity to recognize that these experiences are out there yeah um i know you've been working with angie scarth johnson yeah. a little and and i haven't had the opportunity to see it yet but there's a new north face film out oh yeah yeah about you taking her out and teaching her to to, to bolt, bolt roots yeah, and yeah. things like that yeah tell me a little bit about that and and why is angie even interested in that sort of thing and what's that mentor role look like for you yeah yeah um so i've kind of worked on and off with angie for a few years um a lot more in the last sort of six months or so um, but this project, this Tonga video project was a sort of side thing to the chaining. Um, she wanted to go and do some root development and this had been in the back of her mind for a while. But How then, old is Angie? She's Angie's 14. 14? Yeah. And for, so first off, there aren't many women interested in developing. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that field is growing. Yeah. Yeah. What? what possessed her to want to be involved in that yeah so there's, a, there's two elements to it one is that there was this kind of like you know simmering kind of 
interest in developing some climbing. Mm -hmm. And then she found out about some new development that was happening in Tonga, which is where her father's from. And so Tonga is an island in the South Pacific, a tiny island of about 100,000 people. And she kind of thought, oh, wow, there's development there. I've always wanted to do some route development. You know, we should try and do a trip there. And so got in touch with one of the... Um, one of the early developers and the who actually made a small film about it as well and from there the ball got rolling to kind of make a little film project um in the end i ended up kind of coming onto the onto the project partly because i'm also an ambassador for north face um but also too just because i'm good friends with angie and it worked out well mm. um and so yeah it was very much her idea her kind of goal to go all right let's go and check out what it's like to bolt a climb and do it in a new place and yeah i guess i couldn't be couldn't really feel more privileged to be able to just be a part of that yeah it's a simple role from my point of view it's like well okay we go and put some bolts in things but for yeah i guess for her point of view it's um yeah worked out really well was there someone for you other than your uncle who played that a similar role definitely yeah so i started climbing with a group of people who uh, were already doing some route development um and the way that kind of my peer group i guess thought about climbing was that we were always thinking about you know what other climbs could be done and so the people around me especially one guy in particular justin clark he did a lot of bolting and so you know it was his drill his glue his bolts that i first used to right um to put up my first few routes when i was still at high school yeah um and i guess i'm very very grateful for the experience and exposure that i had at a super young age and it i can sort of see how much it helped to make my climbing life more rich and i'm really really happy to be able to help other people in that way yeah well i'm really glad that somebody like yourself who values the experience is also mentoring and pushing that paying that forward so Mm -hmm. to speak because it's definitely really easy to just say i want only my own experiences you know i i value my time climbing so yeah i'm not going to spend a lot of time yeah with other people teaching other people i would rather enjoy it myself yeah but there's this kind of like um you know constant debate about what is altruism and yeah you know when you say that i'm like well gosh i get so much from the days that i spend you know in tonga with angie sort of teaching her kind of what i know about bolting and you know every you know couple of nights a week when i work with the kids i go away from those sessions like super inspired like and enriched and it's not so much about feeling like oh you know it's good to give back but it is like truly enriching for me in those yeah. moments so like I, I can see the value in it for them and i am definitely motivated to do it because i want to help them but i i can't say that it's um <laughs> that it doesn't serve me at the same time sure it just it happens to be mutually beneficial i guess yeah yeah i think that's the cool thing about it you know is that for me like coaching has been surprisingly rewarding yeah you know when when my i remember the moment when a client of mine sent their first 
seven C plus, you know, really early on yeah. and recognizing like sort of stepping out of my body and recognizing I just got as much enjoyment out of that yeah, yeah. as I did when I sent my first seven C plus, yeah, yeah. you know, and thinking, wow, I've just opened myself up to this huge well of, you know, joy over totally. the next who knows how long yep. that doesn't require me fingerboarding anymore yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah yeah and it and it's a discovery it's um and it's like i guess you know we're talking about novelty before it's another way to have some form of joy or thrill and yeah yeah i, I love it more and more the more time i spend doing it yeah yeah so before we wrap this up i know i totally skipped over it and i want to go back to it yeah. before we leave here is I need to know about this hand conditioning that uh, <laughs> Andrea talked about before Yosemite. Yeah. So as I said, we didn't have many cracks in um, in Australia, and you know, I look, I've looked at the kind of backs of the hands of some of the climbers that I've seen who, yeah. have, you know, done a lot of crack climbing, and they're you know thick and leathery, and I'm like, oh, okay, that doesn't bode well if I sort of start shoving my hand in, you know, granite cracks for a long way. Um, so I, the Japanese are going to be really interested in this right now, by the way. Yes, they certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think wide boys are currently trying to make themselves create, create more business for themselves at the moment, but I'm sure there's going to be some volumes heading to Japan. Um, but no, I was, um, getting a sharp nail and basically just like scratching the backs of my hands. <laughs> you know getting getting to scab up a little bit and sort of stimulating that um you know a little bit of thicker skin, skin, skin adaptation yeah. yeah um the only reason new nail rusty nail uh well actually it had sharpened it so it was it okay. was pretty clean but <laughs> the problem sharper nail but the problem with that was that i also was doing a lot of training at the time and i was probably a little bit run down and then i happened to go climbing um at an area which is kind of known for its kind of grubbiness mm. um really good climbing though um, this is Nara, and um i came back from that weekend with not just kind of a scabby back of the hand but like a puffy it had become infected oh, no. and so the backs of my hands were now infected <laughs> um but thankfully i think i still had about four weeks before i went away so that resolved and it definitely worked definitely definitely had tougher skin Andrew doesn't look so convinced <laughs> yeah oh yeah. well it seems to have worked it definitely worked yeah. I think did you employ the nail gloves. when you were preparing for free rider oh no i think i, <laughs> I learned from ex people's past experiences <laughs> i didn't feel like i needed to do that fortunately also too yeah. she judges some of my kind of preparation a little bit skeptically and yeah. well i don't blame her yeah probably fair <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah okay awesome man i i appreciate hugely you know i had very very limited time black and black heath and yeah. i'm like i'm just gonna message lee relentlessly if he doesn't get yeah. back to me so i'll just show up at his house one morning but i'm glad you I'm glad no no you it's been fun yeah it's great to sit down and have a chat about climbing it's always cool. good Awesome. We should definitely do it again when I'm back here. For sure. I'll be in Blackheath again. I'm 100% positive of that. Awesome. And I'd love to dig more into the like the nerdy side of your training. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Love to. Awesome. Thanks, man. Cool. Thank you. You know, I wish that all of you could have been there 
and seen this little training dungeon um, laboratory that that Lee has in his basement. Um, keep in mind here, he runs a clinic as well as uh, a climbing gym, but in his own basement is this laboratory full of interesting tools and you know the manifestations of Lee's philosophies around training for climbing and that's one of the things I find most fascinating about Lee is that he's this rare blend of understands and respects the science but is also willing to experiment and you know let his quirky ideas take over they're not all going to work some do some don't um and I think he would agree with that as well. But the important thing is that he's experimenting. He's out there looking for every little edge he can find in order to get better. And that, you know, that includes the, the mental side, the philosophical side, as well as the physical side. And that is exactly what makes Lee Cossey one of the best all-around climbers on the planet. So Lee... Thanks again hugely for sitting down with me, for taking the time out. Thank you, Andrea, as well. Your perspective was invaluable in this episode, and I'm looking forward to one with you. Um, And I can't wait to come back and talk to you again, Lee, and hang out in your training laboratory and hear more of these crazy, quirky, and effective ideas that you have. For all of you out there... If you are in the San Francisco area, again, August 16th to 18th, I'll be at Bridges Rock Gym. Nate and I teaching a coaching youth athlete and parents workshop. Um, Check out the Bridges Rock Gym website or there are links right there in your pocket supercomputer in the show notes for this episode. And then if you're in Minneapolis, Wednesday, August 21st, 7.30, I'll be at MBP presenting about all the amazing things I've learned from 200 plus hours of conversations with experts on this podcast. Come out and see me. Hang out with me afterward. I would love to meet everyone and just chat a little. So if you are in neither one of those places, you know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, and the Pinterest at Power Company Climbing. And you can look for us on the Twitter search all you want you're not going to find us not even in australia because we don't tweet we scream like eagles
this time to build.